former governor of Texas, Ann Richards, was known for being a feminist and for her one-liners. One of my favorites of hers, she said, after all, Ginger Rogers did everything that Fred Astaire did. She just did it backwards and in high heels. When it comes to putting a woman in the White House, a woman president could do anything a man could, except the challenge of getting one in the White House feels very much like we are dancing backwards and in high heels. But don't mistake that challenge for going backwards. In her new book, Electable, Why America Hasn't Put a Woman in the White House Yet, underscore italicize bold yet, Ali Vitali breaks down the why and gives us hope that there is still a bright future for women in the Oval Office. This book is out August 23rd, which is right now, and only for this book would I break my promise to myself to not talk about politics on this show. It is too important of an issue to not tackle, and Ali does it masterfully in this book. So a little about her. She is a Capitol Hill correspondent for NBC News, who covered both the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections all the way through, from primary to inauguration, on the ground with the candidates. She also covered the 2018 and 2022 midterms, and if we're lucky, she'll be out front and center again for 2024, which will be here before we know it. This is her first book, and it asks an important question. Why, after 246 years as a nation, has the United States not had a female president? Let's dig into that. Take a listen. Allie, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to talk about this book and to meet you. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So it is so good to have you here. I'm going to ask for the first question, a simultaneously simple and totally complex question. And, you know, listeners, if you want the full answer, grab grab a copy of the book. But why haven't we had a female president yet? It's 2022. Our country is 246 years old. Digress. You're right. It's a simple question. And in theory, it's a simple answer. Like, there is misogyny and there is sexism. But as I detail in the book, it's not nearly as simple as that. It's the system that we use to elect our president in the United States. It's the fact that in theory, people are more open to voting for female presidential candidates than they actually end up being in practice. Almost like the idea of a woman is great and should be on a glide path. But then when we start actually putting faces, names, policies, personalities behind those people, then it starts to get a little bit mushier and stickier. Yeah, absolutely. So your book answers that question with depth and grace, including pointing out that presidential politics was built by straight white men for straight white men to maintain power for, yes, straight Straight white white men. men. Yes. So is the glass ceiling breakable? We've come close, obviously, 2016 but we couldn't quite get there. Is the glass ceiling breakable? I have to believe that it is. I wouldn't have been able to write this book if I didn't think that we would get there. And not to be a spoiler, but at the end, that's kind of the idea that we close with is this this point that I think so many people tend to make, which is, well, I'd love to see it in my lifetime. And I would just really love to stop saying that. Because I do think that we're going to get there. And I think that part of the reason why it has taken so long is because you have to look at when women really started running for office and at what point in their life they started doing so. It's only in the last few decades that we've seen women start their political careers early enough 
that they're able to build a resume that can then make them a viable presidential candidate. Not just that they run for office once in their 60s and then they have only a few years to leverage that into a presidential campaign, but when they start running earlier, they're able to do more with those intervening years and it makes them stronger presidential candidates. So mm -hmm. at this point now you've got Democrats and Republicans alike investing in building that pipeline. Now you have more people who are able to run, not just for Congress and not just for the Senate, but for executive roles like governor or mayor. And then of course, you'll have more viable candidates for women in the pipeline to be president. So I do think that the upside of this is that I don't think that we will have presidential primary cycles for either party where you have no women running or even that there's only one woman running. I think it's just gonna be part of the norm now. And honestly, that's what it's gonna take. Yeah, you know, this I'm going a little bit off script here, but I was thinking, you know, okay, obviously we've seen um, Democratic female candidates in, in droves kind of, but yeah. um, I wonder if it's going to, you know, and this is kind of a rhetorical question, but I wonder if it will take a GOP female candidate to push us over the line. I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm just thinking is it going to take, I, I don't know. what. You're not the only one who's asked that question though, yeah. either, right? When I was talking to Secretary Clinton for this project, she pointed out that it could very well be a conservative woman who gets there first, simply because that's what history tells us has worked in the past in other countries. So mm -hmm. despite the fact that Democrats have done a better job of investing in and pushing for this pipeline of diverse female candidates, Republicans, A, are starting to get with it, the fact that they will get return on investment electorally for running strong female candidates. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out they have to be qualified female candidates. And it's a delineation that several super PACs on the Republican side who want to put women in office have made. But once you start populating that pipeline, you start getting good candidates rising to the top. And because of the permission structures on the Republican side of this, you could end up seeing a Republican candidate first in the White House breaking this glass ceiling. Of course, what Secretary Clinton was sure to point out to me is that's not what she wants to see happen, but it could. Sure, sure. sure. So let's go back a couple years to 2020. You write in the book that this election was paramount. Six women ran for president, the most at one time in any presidential cycle ever, all with the goal of doing something that has still literally never been done before. So can you talk to us about the impact of 2020 and the potentiality on the potentiality of a woman? is president because never in my lifetime and I'm 35 I'll be 36 next month so you and I are roughly the same age I think mm -hmm. I've never I've never seen the the candidate field so populated with women so what was the impact of 2020 me neither and that's the point part of this is the idea of representation mattering and being able to see women viably run presidential campaigns where they are at the top of the field recruiting top staff playing at the highest echelons of these debate stages, all of that is important because it does at a certain point become a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more women that compete in these spaces, the more normalized that becomes and the less of a novelty it is for voters who are trying to consider at the end of the day, all right, I wanna pick a winner, can you win? That's a question that's always at play in presidential politics. Mm -hmm. It was especially at play in 2020 for democratic voters who all they wanted to do no matter what was beat Donald Trump. Yeah. And the fact that they had only ever seen one woman go up against him in Hillary Clinton and lose, despite the fact that Clinton won the popular vote, and yeah. but Democratic voters were still kind of shell-shocked, in my experience, talking to them on the campaign trail, about the idea that Hillary Clinton, they thought, 
was definitely going to win that election. And so they were carrying around a little bit of that shadow of what happened in 2016 with Trump and then applying it to the idea that they had seen him beat a woman before. It's something that came to a head and that I write about it in a chapter that we watched play out on a debate stage in Iowa where Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were effectively arguing over the idea of can a woman win? To me, it was the question that ruled the entire primary. And it's uh -huh. one that voters are always asking themselves but really you can't know if someone wins until you elect them. So exactly. it really cut hard against the female candidates. Yeah, no, that's so well said. And you write in the book that 2020 was progress that demanded celebration. I agree. But on the flip side, it also laid bare some concerning realities. So can you talk to us a little bit about, and you kind of already have started to, about those concerning realities. Did, did 2020 show us that while we've come farther than ever before, we still have so far to go? I don't mean to quote Olivia Rodrigo, but it's sort of one step forward and two steps back. I think this might be the first time Olivia Rodrigo has ever made it to this show. She so should be quoted more. I agree. We need more Olivia Rodrigo on this show. So agree with agree with that completely. And more Olivia Rodrigo in presidential politics discourse. So here I am to bring that, which is to say it. that we are making progress. But until we make that ultimate progress, which is breaking that glass ceiling, and there's several glass ceilings left to break, right? I mean, mm -hmm. places like Vermont have still never elected women to Congress. Like there are still wow. serious glass ceilings that need to be broken. And it's not just the presidency, but every time we see more women competing in these spaces and competing successfully in these spaces, it is more bricks being laid in the road and it means it's a smoother path for the people who walk on that road next. And I think it's why it was so important. And this was for Republican and Democratic female presidential candidates that I spoke to or their staff. They're all aware that they are charting a path in real time and that little girls everywhere for the next generations of them are watching. So it meant that people like Michelle Bachman, when she was on the campaign trail, would take time to talk to women and girls about being a conservative woman in presidential politics. It's why Senator Elizabeth Warren did so many pinky promises with young girls on the campaign trail, getting down with them at eye level, holding them by the pinky and saying, I'm Elizabeth Warren, I'm running for president because that's what girls do. They were aware that while they were charting their own path forward, they were looking behind them to make sure, okay, I'm bringing people along with me who look like me and who could aspire to be what I'm being. Yeah. You want to know a fun fact about me that you never asked for? Definitely. My very first, and I think, I think if I remember right from the book, it's been a minute since I've read it, about a month since I've read it, but my very first dream ever was to be president of the United States. And why did you not follow the dream? Well, it's not too late yet, right? I mean, no. I'm, I just turned 30. I mean, well, I, I'm almost 36, but I'm only a year into my eligibility, right? So it's never too late, but you know, I mean, not to make this show all about me, but politics is not sexy to me anymore. Politics mm. is just, it has lost its luster for me. I was so committed to this. I mean, one of my degrees is in political science, but I, I just, it, it seems too impossible to be, to, yeah. to do this. And then I think maybe that's one of the, the theses of this, of this whole book is, you know, can we make it possible? Is it possible? And, you know, a woman, a woman did not 
win the presidency, obviously, in 2020. But, you know, there's hope to be found always. A woman and a woman of color at that became the nation's first female yes. vice president upon her inauguration on January 20th, 2021. Of course, yeah. Vice President Kamala Harris said on that day she is the first. <laughs> she would not be the last. Hi, puppy. But yeah. do, you, <laughs> do you think she's right? Do you think that she's the first of hopefully many to come behind her in, in the vice presidential role and hopefully the presidential role as well? I think that there's a lot in Kamala's vice presidency that is a sign of progress. The first mm -hmm. is that for the Biden team, it was very clear to them that having a woman on the ticket would, in, would be an asset. That's a departure that I detail in the book from 1984 and 2008 when it was Geraldine Ferraro and Sarah Palin respectively, because those campaigns were just looking sort of throwing spaghetti at a wall thinking, well, this will be energizing because we've never seen it before. Yeah. Now in yeah. 2020, we saw a campaign saying, no, strategically and politically, it is just good politics for us to have a woman on the on the ballot with us. I think it means that you'll never have a ticket that's just all straight white men ever again. Because Ooh, there's I an like acknowledgement that now. Yes, mm -hmm. me too, because there's an acknowledgement now that diverse leadership means diverse candidates doing the leading. And that in these powerful spaces, you need to have diverse lived experiences, diverse genders, diverse identities, that that's now an asset. So that's clearly a sign of what's important here. But also in Kamala Harris's vice presidency is the fact that she is showing what it is to be elevated to these key positions. Now the question is going to be if you can elect a woman up into that top slot, not just the number two in command, although what she is doing every day is showing people what it is to have a woman closer than ever before to the Oval Office, but also in these key places of decision making and shaping the conversation at the highest levels of the policy conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, want to talk just for a second about 2016, not that anybody that's listening to this show could have possibly forgotten. Um, but in 2016, of course, we have Hillary Clinton as our first female nominee for president. Her loss was devastating to many women, including me. So um, she often gets um, the, as you write about in the book, the quote unquote, there's something, there's just something about her effect. Mm -hmm. So for those, and, and you know, when, when you can't, when people are criticizing a woman and they can't pinpoint or don't want to pinpoint that they're mm -hmm. criticizing her because she's a woman, they will just say there's just something about her. So can you yep. kind of explain that to our listeners? This almost could have been the title of the book. There's just something about her because mm -hmm. it is something that comes up when you talk about, and I thought about this a lot after 2016 going into 2020, the fact that there was a lot of polling data that showed that this was a moment that was ripe for a female candidate to succeed in, that people saw in 2016 the power that a female candidate could bring to the table, and that they could have been ready in this Democratic primary to elect another woman to be the standard bearer. That was the theory. And then you have the practice, which is the names start actually filling in. You start figuring out who these people are. And all of a sudden, you have the same thing all over again. Well, gosh, there's just something about Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris or Amy Klobuchar or Kirsten Gillibrand or Tulsi Gabbard or Mary that I just don't all like. of them. Yeah. All and it's of all, them. What do you what is the commonality there? Yeah, uh, exactly. And it doesn't take much to figure it out. And look, I detail in the book because I'm a political correspondent first. The fact that there are political reasons why these women did not win the nomination in 2020. There are political reasons that Hillary Clinton didn't win the Electoral College in 2016. But also, 
we have to layer a gender lens over all of it to understand the unquantifiable thing that you can't talk about as politics because that is so swirling in this pot. And I think that once you factor it in, people discard gender and misogyny because it's hard to quantify and you can't hold it in your hand and see it tangibly. But when you look at a lot of the examples that I talk about in the book, things that I covered, things that I lived in real time, you start to see it so plainly. The first thing I thought about too, in the lens of just something about her, is the idea that when I was on the road with Donald Trump in 2015 and 2016, he used to say on the campaign trail that he wanted to see a woman president, just not that woman, just not Hillary Clinton. And so it extended even to Donald Trump in the midst of the 2016 election, the way that every other voter that I heard talking about it on the Republican and sometimes Democratic side, well, I, I would vote for her, just not her, just not that her. Another her? Yeah. Just not this particular her. The and so I think what happened her that has exactly yes. And, and I think in, yeah, and I think in 2016, the thing that always baffled me is people seem to make themselves feel better about the fact that a woman didn't win in 2016 by saying, oh, well, she was just too complicated of a woman. It was never going to be Hillary. She was the problem, not the fact that she was a she. And I think the 2020 shows us okay, yeah, Hillary Clinton had some very specific problems that she brought to the table as a candidate, but Hillary Clinton was not Elizabeth Warren or Klobuchar or Gillibrand or Harris. So explain it to me again now. And again, the more women that run, the more you can call that out because it's clearer, okay, it's not just something about her. You're saying there's something about all of them. Yeah, and let's talk about Elizabeth Warren for a second because you opened the book with her, with Senator, mm -hmm. or Senator Elizabeth Warren, presidential candidate 2020. Later in the book, write that even when she was winning, she was losing. You quote a Warren supporter, Adam Gentleson. I hope I'm saying that correctly. As you tweeting, are. Tweeting, everyone loves the woman once she's not trying to take the power away from men anymore. Like everyone deplored mm -hmm. Elizabeth Warren until she was no longer a candidate and they love her. So, I mean, what does, why is I just, I, I'm, I'm, I, I feel like I'm asking the same question 20 different ways, but what, you know, what's it going to take? Like what just, I just don't know what it's going to take and why is our system this way? I know that's an impossible question, but well, look, you wrote I, I the think, book on it. So, <laughs> well, look, I think in the same way that Elizabeth Warren, the day that she dropped out of the race, I felt so many things that felt parallel to the day that Hillary Clinton conceded the election as well, because it was a moment of people celebrating Clinton. What a powerful speaker, what a powerful moment, the way that she lent her words and her voice to this moment. And it was like, yeah, okay, why are we suddenly praising her only because she's just dropped out? Like we take these women almost as if seeing them with new eyes as they are leaving the race. And in part, it's because we don't necessarily love it when women are openly ambitious, especially for powerful jobs. But you're yeah. never going to be president if you don't raise your hand super high in the air and jump up and down and say that you want it. Men right. have been doing that for decades. Women are only just doing it now. And we have to get comfortable as a country with seeing that. And then not just seeing that, but celebrating that. And quite frankly, I think that that's what that quote from Adam Gentleson really means, which is, yeah, we're good with the woman telling us that there was misogyny and gender playing a role in this race and we're better off hearing it only once she's out of it because that's yeah. when we're comfortable hearing the criticisms of the process from the people who are within it and i think that's something that followed a lot of these women around the whole time not just warren but klobuchar when she was talking about the fact that a woman with mayor p Buttigieg's qualifications would not be taken as seriously in the presidential arena that was something that to me 
always just felt like she was stating a factual statement, but people were shocked that she would say something like that. And yeah, it helped her try to bolster her experience over Buddha judges. That's that's the point though. That's what you do when you're running for president. Well, that's what, yeah, that's what you do in a presidential campaign. It's not about, it's about your race and you becoming the winning candidate, not lifting someone else up. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I I think you just nailed it. It's just, I mean, still, it just continues to be that we are afraid of ambitious women and definitely in the presidential sphere, but in, in general. And, um, but there's no other way to, to become a nominee, let alone win a presidential campaign, unless you are willing to say, I am the best candidate for this job. And yeah. well, there's it, this, this, there's perfect op-ed that I point out in the book where the, the, one of the final lines of it is full of contradictions. It's called the person, perfect female president at the end, at the end of it, they say something to the effect of, um, she wants to be president, but she'll never run for it. And it's like, well, that's pretty much the confines that you're telling women to run within. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, even look at me, you know, and, and you, you wrote in the book that you considered at one point getting into politics as well. And I told myself on this show, I think this is episode like 68 or 69 of the show. I told myself I would never talk about politics on the show, but then this title stood out to me because I read the title of the book and then I read the book and loved it so much. And I said, it took me back to being eight years old and a very bossy, a very ambitious, little girl who hadn't yet learned that the world was stacked against those type of little girls. And when those little girls become women, they, they lose that confidence, unfortunately, as, as time goes yeah. on. Um, I, I told you I'm 35, 36 next month. And, you know, I think about myself as, as a child a lot and what, you know, what I would tell that little girl. And I, I wonder, have we moved the needle any closer to achieving this than when I was an eight-year-old in 1994 dreaming. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, I even think about it from the fact that when I first was able to, when I was at voting age, right, 2008, Mm -hmm. I have never experienced a presidential cycle that didn't allow me to at least consider female candidacies, right? 2008 was Hillary Clinton's first run. Then you move forward you end up with Trump and Hillary in 2016, right? The years that don't have incumbents, and that's at least what makes this a harder process, right? Is sometimes election cycles just aren't open. So you don't have the ability to field an entirely massive field that includes female candidates. But at the same time, the fact that we have Kamala Harris in the White House right now, women look to that. Republican women said this to me too. It's progress regardless of your partisan stripes because people are seeing when they watch the State of the Union, The president of the United States is a man, but Madam Speaker and Madam Vice President sit behind him for the very first time. That's You know what? Progress takes progress and progress begets progress. At least that's the hope. Progress is progress, no matter how small. And I'm saying it right now on this show, there will be a day. There will be a day. And that day will come when the numbers work in a woman's favor and that proverbial glass. I don't even know if I like the phrase glass ceiling, but the proverbial glass ceiling will be shattered and it will happen. And I don't know when that will be, but maybe it's you, Allie, and maybe it's me. I don't know. (laughs) I can tell you. (laughs) Someone's going to do this. And, but looking ahead to the immediacy, my last question for you, looking ahead to the immediacy of 2024, what do you think? Will we see women enter the race as we did in 2020, that kind of historic numbers? Will we see women um, on, well, I I don't know what's going to happen with Biden if he'll run again, he's an incumbent, but um, will we see women on the Republican side? What do you think? What's your predictions? 
So I do think that 2024 is both the potential for like massive progress, but also it's a process that will still be governed by two old white men because Mm -hmm. Biden and Trump are both the standard bearers for their party. And they both clearly have intentions, at least publicly stated ones of running for president again. That being said, I think that especially on the Republican side, what's been clear in the last few weeks is the fact that Congresswoman Liz Cheney is down, that Congresswoman Liz Cheney is down, but not out. Mm-hmm. And she clearly wants to run for something. And if you're going around saying that you're going to stop President Trump from being President Trump again, that probably means you're going to have to mount a primary in the Republican Party. So we are going to see women at the forefront of that battle. And I actually think you know, if I put my congressional correspondent hat on for a second, because that's where I spend most of my time for NBC, the accountability of Donald Trump right now is really being led in large part by women. People like Congresswoman Cheney, yes, but also I spent some time in Alaska recently, Senator Lisa Murkowski, one of seven Republican senators who voted to convict the former president of impeachment charges. And that's nothing to say of the women from his administration who came forward during the January 6th committee hearings to give their stories and share what they think should be Trump being held accountable. So women are really at the forefront of this movement right now in Republican politics. Now, Republicans don't run gender first. That being said, women are still doing the leading here. Yeah, I love to hear it. I I, hold, I, I just keep, I keep thinking about that little girl in 1994 and wondering what happened to that dream and how, yeah. you know, the realities of, of presidential politics or politics in general has taken that away. And I want eight-year-old little girls right now with that same dream to never have that dream taken away and to have it be as much of a reality as, as anyone winning Me too. Winning the presidency. And that's, that's at the heart of this book. The book is fantastic. Truly one I wish I'd written. It's called Electable. Why America hasn't put a woman in the White House yet, yet being yet. off this word. <laughs> it's out August 23rd. Allie, you're fantastic. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Absolutely. This was great. I have to tell you, I left that conversation feeling more hopeful than I have in a long time about a woman's electability to the highest office in the land. The question of will we have a female president is a win, not an if, at least in my opinion, and I can't wait to see who will do it. So friends, stay tuned. We have tons, I'm serious, tons of interesting conversations coming your way this fall. So many good books coming out this fall. I am so thrilled about some of these conversations, all of these conversations. Really, I can hardly contain myself. You won't believe who we are booking on this show. So many good books to be read and to be discussed, and we're getting into it all right here on I'd Rather Be Reading. Stay tuned.